0: what's going on everybody welcome back to the vet moves podcast where you get to hear the shortcuts that you can only learn through experience i'm your host anthony goods some of you may know me as an overseas basketball player but i'm also a co-founder of swish cultures and a stanford gentleman and that is very important today because we got a two-for-one special for you and today's guest is mitch johnson mitch was a former teammate of mine at stanford before going on to play overseas He transferred out of hoop to coach at the college and G League levels before securing a position as an assistant coach with the San Antonio Spurs. He's had an interesting path into coaching in the NBA, so I hope you all enjoy this conversation. Let's get into it. Mr. J, what's good, bro?
1: Hey, man, thanks for having me, man. I I feel very privileged. I know you're doing a lot of things, making a lot of moves, so I'm happy to be here.
0: Hey man, it's always an honor to have another Stanford gentleman, you know what I mean, on the, on the podcast. So, uh, you know, I'm glad you, uh, you you carved some time out of your day, man, to come, uh, to come bless us, man. So, so thank you. <laughs> thank you, man. But yeah, so here at the Vet Move podcast, I always uh, like to ask and kind of take you back down memory lane. Now retrospect, what is one thing you would have told yourself as a rookie professional basketball player? And then what is one thing you would have told yourself as a rookie assistant coach You know, here right now?
1: I think, I think as a rookie basketball player, I think I would have told myself that it's business and don't ever allow it to get anything other than that. And I think when you're a rookie, you're excited, you're nervous, you're anxious. There's so many emotions and feelings that I think the, the more you can keep it exactly what it is, which is a business, I think it probably keeps your mind in the most efficient capacity. And as an assistant coach, I would probably say, be quiet, observe, evaluate, and and learn from other people's experiences, probably more than your own, just because, you know, when you're a rookie in anything, 99% of us, you know, you, you have a smaller role or there's someone, uh, you know, ahead of you or, or with more wisdom or tenor than you. So, you know, it's, you're going to learn a lot more by listening than, than by talking or doing because someone, whether you like them or not, or you think they're good at what they do, they've been through what you're trying to, to get through. And there's a lot of stuff that can help you there.
0: Yeah. That's a fact, man. I think, uh, you know, going back to your, you know, your point as a rookie player, I think I had to learn that the hard way as far as like seeing it as a business. I, I thankfully i learned early because i wasn't getting paid so i was like all right <laughs> y'all ain't paying me y'all. i'm about to show you i'm about to show you how i really feel like you know right. there's no there's no love in this game and uh, you know unfortunately i feel like taking your emotions out of it is something that you you have to do and you know looking at it as a business is not always a bad thing you know what I'm saying because the team is very much is a business the team wants to get the most out of you you want to get you know the most money as possible so hopefully that pushes you to grind harder but uh but yeah man I mean it definitely is a business and I know fans probably hate to hear that but that's exactly what it is and I think the uh, the longer you go in your career the more you start to realize it you know the more situations that come up that uh rub you the wrong way and uh and yeah I think definitely picking up on the on the expertise of uh you know older coaches older I I mean I've always looked at it like even from a player's perspective like there's always something to learn from somebody like even if it's an assistant coach and he has you shooting two dribble pull-ups to the elbow for an hour you have an hour to get better at that one skill even if that's all he knows. And uh, you really have to step outside of yourself sometimes and and do, you know, what's going to benefit you. So, you know, I think that's, uh, that's definitely worthy advice. When, when you're a rookie assistant coach, do you feel like you were a little, like, hard-headed or you were pretty open-minded coming into it?
1: I think for me, a rookie when I got to the Spurs, right, because I've been a rookie in college, I've been a rookie at different levels. When I got to the Spurs, it was a... Definitely a overwhelming feeling of like, am I going to even keep up like with the basketball? You know, because I didn't know. And Pop is a is who he is. So mm-hmm. uh, around a figure like that, I think there was a lot of just unknown, and the unknown is always a little scary, right? And um, right. so I think for me, it actually calmed me down where I was like, oh, okay, I, I actually do know basketball, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like oh, okay, I, I do understand what's coming out of his mouth. Like it's actually in a weird way, simpler at the highest level. It's just the attention to detail and the discipline and the talent is what makes it so unique because that's at the highest level or it's, the you know, it's you you have no room for error in some of those other ways, like the attention to detail and the discipline. So
0: um,
1: I think that's what I had to learn was it's almost simpler, but Mm -hmm. it's so much more difficult because the talent of the people you are competing against along with trying to get the most talented people on your team to buy into things as you you know we alluded to earlier is just because it's business just because each player wants to maximize their individual aspirations whatever those are monetary personal goals doesn't mean we can't be a family doesn't mean we can't all pull this thing in the same direction and try to have you know team success while achieving as many personal goals as we can and that's really really difficult obviously and I think that's where as a young coach when you see really good people you see them juggling that whole deal of they're talking to this young guy about developing his game and he's not playing a lot and then they're dealing with the best player on the team and trying to get him into buy into something where you know he's he doesn't need the the 12th guy on the team as much on the court you know what i mean but maybe he needs him in a different way so it's it's a lot and i think you just got to kind of sit back and, and absorb as much as you can
0: so going into you know being a rookie with the uh a rookie assistant with the with the spurs i mean coaching under somebody you know like a greg popovich who's obviously a legendary coach i mean i feel like you know you kind of go into that with a as you said like kind of some a little bit of insecurity you know what i mean and kind of just seeing like okay has everything i've learned up to this point been enough you know for this moment um what do you think were were some of the challenges like i mean you spoke to obviously the attention to detail and things like that but what were some of like the uh the mental challenges you had to you had to overcome and let's just say like what did you have to improve on as an assistant you know, once you got to the Spurs?
1: So one thing to clarify, and I was fortunate, I've kind of been a rookie twice. When I first got to the Spurs is with the Austin Spurs, the G League team. And then when I got to the San Antonio Spurs an assistant coach, obviously that was a rookie on Pop staff. So almost two different transitions. I think that was fortunate because I spent three years in Austin, which allowed me to gain corporate knowledge of our organization and kind of our operation under the umbrella, maybe a half a step removed from pop, obviously, because I was in Austin, mm-hmm. but I, I, I got to gain a lot of that corporate knowledge and experience. And then I think the biggest thing is when I, you know, became, came to San Antonio was, you know, you're, you're in meetings, you're in game, whatever it is, you're interacting with him. And you have to say, no, I disagree with that. <laughs> and, and then when you say it, you have to say it, with confidence and with reason behind it. And that, you know, that's obviously extremely difficult early on because, you know, you you may not have the relationship where you've been in the trenches with this guy and he doesn't trust you like that or you don't have the confidence because you're like, this guy has forgotten more basketball 10 years ago than I'll know in 10 lifetimes, you know what I mean? And I think that's the biggest thing. And I think at some point it was like, hey, man, you got to believe in your stuff. If you don't believe in your stuff, then nobody else is going to.
0: Right. You know, and I think it kind of goes to the uh goes to the point like I rather I rather lose a job, you know, standing on what I know or what I think I know than, you know what I'm saying, just trying to conform and, you know, just be that be that yes man kind of a guy. Uh, and I think that kinda of goes with uh with every industry, but so let's just go back to, you know, transitioning out of your playing career. Like was coaching always the industry that you wanted to go in or how did that come about?
1: I, I laugh now because when I talk to players, I think maybe if someone's dad or somebody was a coach, I don't think any player wants to coach ever while they're still playing. Like I, I, there's there's a direct conflict <laughs> between a player and a coach. And I, and I, I think that. It, that goes for whatever level at whatever age. So no, I did not want to coach. If, yeah, if you asked me as a player when I was a kid or going, you know, I was going to play in the NBA. I don't know what team, probably the Bulls cuz I was a Jordan fan. I was going to win 10 championships. And then when I was done, I probably I think I wanted to be a GM. It's probably what I would have said. Cuz it was still a part of the game, but you know, the coaches they control you too much. They don't get to be on the court. They don't get to shoot the shot. They don't get to do the things that a player can do, so it's almost like you're, you're taking away from the players kind of always that, that generalization, that perception, and you don't get to be in the game. You're not in the lines. You're on the right, side. Right, right. So, well, no, I, I did not want to coach. That is, I laugh now because every time you get around guys that are players and they don't want to coach, and some, some you know, it's, it's not meant for it, but every now and then you'll see a guy in a couple of years, you're like, huh. <laughs> 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 I got you too.
0: So what, what pushed you into coaching then?
1: You know, I was still in the gym. I I think the biggest thing about coaching that for me at least still scratches that itch is uh, I I get to go to work with hoop shoes and basketball shorts on and I'm in the locker room and I'm dealing with players and you get that instant satisfaction of a win and that instant the world is ending of a loss. And it obviously isn't, you know, me guarding you and you're going up for the game winning shot and I'm trying to stop you it's obviously not at that level but it it, it does still check a lot of boxes for me competitive wise um, camaraderie wise and I think that's probably something I didn't realize as a player how much that dynamic is there as a coach and it it does it really fulfills me
0: so as you were making your transition into coaching, like what were some of the first steps that you that you took? Did you reach out to former coaches, or how did you get your first your foot in the door? Because you started off, uh, you started off coaching Eybl first, or did you, uh, or were you at, at Portland with Rev?
1: No, so it actually started. So I was I was overseas, and my dad got really sick, and I came back actually before my season was over. It was like. I think it was January, and it was before the lockout hit in the summertime. The NBA lockout. Mm-hmm. So I was in. I was in California with my dad. The lockout hit, and when it was time to possibly go back the next year, because the stuff personal wise, my father was was settled. They were just lowballing the hell out of me because <laughs> yeah. I didn't finish the season the NBA lockout. So, you know, I mean, anyone that knows basketball around that time, everybody was, it was just levels, whatever that was, you were getting two levels below. And so it was just kind of this weird timing for me. And I just said, you know what? That's not worth it. I I would rather go get paid 10 times that and play at the YMCA or at the pickup or whatever it was. Like it just, I, I never thought I would say that. And I did. And I don't know if it was a combination of the personal stuff or the I don't know what was the main driver, just all the combination. And uh, at the time, because I made the decision in like August, so colleges are starting, NBA teams are already set. I actually ended up moved, and I moved home to Seattle with uh, my mom and I was an intern at Seattle University for Cameron Dollar. Mm. And they just became division one a few years before and it was a small staff and allowed me to do a lot of things. and you know, not not be uh, or not have a lot of pressure, I guess, on myself because I was just an intern, but I had a relationship with Coach Dollar and he gave me a ton of, you know, different opportunities to kind of get to know and ha- gain some experience in, in different ways, and I'm super thankful f- for that. But I started that, and then I did the the EYBL for a few years and in, in the high school AAU stuff, and then Portland is kind of the timeline. And then after Portland is when I uh, came to the Austin Spurs.
0: Got you. Okay, so let's keep it, you know, more pro-focused on this one. But so let's just say, getting into the Austin Spurs, how did you, uh, how did you get into that gig? Was it, uh, did you make phone calls, or how did you get your foot in the door there?
1: So it was, it was a really unique experience. Um, Dejounte Murray is a guy that I coached as a kid, and he was at University of Washington his freshman year. My one year at Portland. Uh, didn't necessarily expect him to go out of college after one year. So when that kind of happened very rapidly at the same time as the Portland deal was kind of finishing up, he went into pre-draft and it kind of just made sense timing and circumstantial wise for me to kind of just support him. I didn't run it, you know, he did it all through his agency. So I wasn't necessarily, you know, the head of it. I was just a part of it, whatever that was, a mentor, a friend, family, helping him on the court, whatever he needed, and through that, that was kind of an opening to a lot of relationships or um, introductions, and so because of that, it was actually kind of really unique. People were calling me because they wanted to ask about him, and so that really helped me out of, I'm talking to these people now that I didn't even know or I had met or knew of, and I had met them in passing you know, when we were at Stanford or when I played AAU, and You know, it's such a small world. You know, there's people that are running the draft for NBA teams that used to do high school recruiting stuff. You know what I mean? And they used to remember us when we played and all that. It's a basketball world so small. So anyway, um, that kind of got it all rolling. And from there, I started to think about what I wanted to do next. And it was kind of one of these things where I wasn't quite sure. I just, I kind of um, put a bunch of irons in the fire and I wasn't really sure where it was going to lead to. You know, obviously mm-hmm. my path going up until then, I had no idea from all the high school and college stuff. So it was kind of open-minded, you know, you got to be able to move to New York, to Florida, and everywhere I've been tweeting from there to the West Coast. And um, as I was going through it, I got a call from uh, Andy Birdsong, who was the general manager of the Austin Spurs at the time, and he was the director of pro personnel for San Antonio, and he, he discussed a role in their G League team and just said, you know, it's very heavily focused on development. We think that you have a profile that would be a fit and it would be an assistant coaching job. And, you know, obviously, especially six years ago in the G League, it's not glamorous, right? And, and they don't promise you if you do this, you'll end up being in San Antonio. You know, it's it's just a job. It's just a job. And it's a seasonal job, you know, so right. it's – it's um, at the time, my wife now, who was my girlfriend then, lived in Seattle, and it was one of those where it's just like you take the leap of faith, right? <laughs> like, you know, it's the same thing. Like even when you're playing, right? The, the the basketball takes you all around the world, and you never really know what you get from it. You know, I, I ended up taking it, and it, it was lucky. But yeah, I mean, even during that time, there were so many people that I got a chance to talk to, and. Introduce myself to or reintroduce myself to that I hadn't seen in years. And that network is probably the biggest thing. You know, you have a network now because, you know, things change, teams change, people's lives change and that, that network doesn't.
0: I think maintaining that network is is the toughest and the most key part of of anything. You know, what I mean, I. Uh, it's one thing to like meet people, but you know, to kind of stay connected somewhat. And obviously social media makes it a little bit easier and there's other ways, but um, you know, building a network and I think maintaining a network is is huge, especially in the basketball world. But um, transitioning into a, a NBA assistant, was there an interview process or um, obviously they just kind of been watching you over the years when you were at Austin? Yeah, it was
1: it was probably definitely a unique interview do that like that because of mm-hmm. i was already technically in the in the program and, and with the organization and pops probably had a unique case just because he's been around for so long that like he knows what he wants probably at this point um so there there was a process i don't know it, i probably wouldn't equate it to a, a natural interview process probably like that other teams do but yeah because at the end of the day uh, interview processes getting to know the team or organization or company right them getting to know you and are you a fit for them and vice versa and then obviously is it worthwhile for you whether that's compensation wise or, or personal life fit and and things like that and you know like the big thing for me at that time was my family moved. so when I was in Austin they were in Seattle so when I got offered the job in San Antonio. That was a life decision for me because that meant my family was being uprooted, which was then three kids and my wife from Seattle to Texas. So for me, like that consumed the whole interview process. Like I knew I wanted the job. I knew it was a fit because I was already with Austin. So I was lucky in that regard. It wasn't a bunch of unknown like Man, I don't know the staff. I don't know if they're going to support me. They don't really know me, so are they going to trust? Me? You know, I didn't. I was lucky in that regard, but it was huge because at that point, it was kind of like that leap of faith as a group, right? Like you're moving now, your family. So it's not just how the practice goes. Like, did the kids like school? Do they like the neighborhood? Does your wife enjoy the new place she's living? She's not by her, you know, her network. So. Yeah. That, for me, was for sure the the biggest uh aspect, I guess when I was going through that process.
0: Got you, so thinking about n b a assistant coach, the job as a whole from a general sense, what are some things that you think players that maybe want to transition into this career are probably not considering, but they probably should you know give this some thought
1: um I think if I could, if I could say two things. The one thing on the the probably hard end is when you're a player, it's all about you, and it should be. But it's all about you, everything from, uh, you know, the if it's a hard practice to a light practice, what they're gonna have for you to eat, the training performance support staff that they're going to massage you and my this is sore and my uh shoes don't feel good so they get you the insoles you know whatever you need it's it's at the tip of your hands you just tell them what you need and it's for you and you know when you're when you become anything but a player that that's done and obviously good organizations still take care of their own and and all those things but it's, it is not about you it is about the players and um I think that's obviously probably a pretty hard adjustment just because not even the ego part of it, even though that's probably still there for a good amount, but it's just, that's the reality of it, right? I mean, it's, that's a big adjustment. Uh, It's a role change, but I do think on the, on the positive end, this, the stuff that I'm talking about earlier, I did talk about earlier in regards to myself, I do think that that is a real thing in terms of, you know, I think when you ask players where they miss the most, it's, it's. It's the game, but it's the locker room. It's the camaraderie. Yeah. It's, the, it's the teammate stuff. And I do think that you can, you have an, an opportunity to get some of that. And obviously, you know, every staff and everything is different, but that's just like every team. So, you know, I think those are two things probably on both ends. I don't want to sound too negative and push guys. Like, <laughs> no way. And I don't want to also sound like, man, this guy's over there just lying through his teeth trying to make it sound all – like you said all good
0: yeah i mean i think there's there's positives and negatives to every job and i think that uh you know everything always looks glamorous you know from the other side of the street you know you look at you know being an assistant coach and you just you know sometimes you just have a false uh a false idea of what that job actually entails and you know people dive into it and. You know, you realize, like, you know, I'm pretty sure. You know, sometimes you have to be in the gym when you don't want to be in the gym. For sure. When you thought you were done, you get the the random calls and you got to rush back over. You know, what are what are some of those things that? Uh, I mean, and again, not to be too negative, but just to kind of shed some reality on like the demands of being an assistant coach in the league. Yeah,
1: the two obvious ones are just the time, right? If if you're a player, hey, practices at eleven. Well, they may get there at nine for treatment, lifts, whatever they do pre two hour practice till one. Maybe they get out of there around two. They do a little stuff afterwards. But that's that's not the deal for the coaches. You know, you're in there early. You have to watch film. You have to prepare. You have to talk to your group. You got to continue to try to push the envelope to get better as a team and as Guys individually that needed developmental-wise, right? The younger guys or the guys at the end of the roster that maybe aren't playing as much. So what do we have to do for them? You know, we can't just cater to the guy that's playing the whole game and averaging twenty points because he's on a whole different timeline and wavelength than the guy who hasn't played in a week. You know, we how do we how do we keep him fresh and not dying on the vine and and you know going south on us and not being like he's involved and participating. So it's it's a it's just a constant juggling act you're doing the whole time trying to support your head coach and then be mindful of the players and the players like I said are very rarely do you leave a game and every player is feeling good you know we we talk about it's usually maybe two two games a year maybe right like you win a game but that guy didn't play or he shot one for ten or he had seven turnovers and as long as they are good amongst the group you don't get mad at that as as an assistant coach you don't want You don't need guys to say, "Hey guys, I, I played play terrible, so and it's okay or I didn't play." You know, you don't it, you can't have it both ways. You can't have a competitive guy and then he's got to be just the great guy all the time. As long as he's a good teammate, frustrations okay. You know what I mean? And I think that's where for a coach, you you're just juggling all those aspects all the time. You're trying to put out stuff before it gets to the head coach. You're trying to keep guys in a good mindset. And then another the obvious one that I don't need to go into as much detail about but is just the travel. You just planes, trains, automobiles, away from the family, different time zones, and you you know you got to balance that work, life, sleep, workout if you want to stay healthy, you know whatever it is, and that's obviously not easy. It's, it's time management.
0: Man, it's that uh, it's that it's that race against your playing weight, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know I'm chasing it every morning. Oh, no. <laughs> so well they nah, got more
1: food, they got more food, we got food everywhere we go for these guys, you know what I mean? It's like I just try to walk the other way. Uh, we got food on the plane, we got food at the hotel, we got food at the gym, we got food after I mean it's just it's it's not a good setup for us
0: <laughs> no nah, definitely when you uh when you're in the mid thirties, you know what I mean <laughs> it's uh getting a little shaky, man, but uh, man, last couple questions though, um, what advice would you give to let's just say a player that's one year away from retiring? and that has you know, aspirations of becoming an NBA assistant, what, what things do you think he should be doing to prepare himself for that transition?
1: If, the, if he already knows he wants to do it?
0: Yeah, he knows he wants to do it. He's one year away. He's in his last year playing, and he knows he wants to.
1: I, I would say just ask questions. And, and, and really, because the great thing in someone in that spot, you're actually a benefit for the coaches. Because you're actually going to be like an advocate probably in the locker room, hopefully, right? Unless there's some dysfunction in the situation. But if you're in the locker room and you want to be a coach and you're going to come to us and help us with the messaging, then I would do anything for you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like Because the hardest thing you're trying to do as a coach is how do, how do these guys know I care? How do these guys know I know what I'm talking about? How do these guys you know, trust this, even though it may not work today, but hopefully it works next week or next month, or we don't know when it's going to work. We ask these guys to do things individually, whether it's with their individual game at times or as a group where, you know, you don't get instant success or consistent success early on. That's part of the growing pains of this game. And so if you're a guy that can be a bridge for the team and the coaches you know, at the highest level, you see it, right? You see the, which this isn't necessarily, it, but it is. It's the Udonis Haslam's in Miami or what Juwan Howard was or, you know, that vet that is a coach in a jersey. And I think obviously not everyone's in that situation, but that same theme or premise of come and ask me because I'm really going to, the sliding scale is way more for the coaches in terms of who's going to get the most benefit of it all because you're helping them with their job. With what actually puts food on the table, right? So it's almost like that little favor of trying to help you or talk to you or give them some insight of, of what it is, to me, that that trade-off, every coach would take that 100 times out of 100. So if I'm a player in that position, I would easily go to the staff, and whether it's the head coach or someone on staff, and I, I would bet a lot of money that they would find someone that would happily kind of jump in the boat with them on that one and be a part of that.
0: OK, and let's say, OK, let's just say, let's just take a different a different player. Like, let's just say an overseas player mm-hmm. and let's just say he's two years away from retiring, wants to get into NBA coaching. So he, he basically has two summers here in the States right. um, to kind of start preparing for that transition. What would you what would you suggest for that type of player?
1: Um, you know, you and I have talked about this for years. I think it goes back to that network that we talked about and especially the overseas player, I think they have the most unique, probably slash difficult time juggling that, right? You're over there trying to figure out how where's the best place between Spain and Italy, and, all, and then you're dealing with all the things that come with that. To think that you're also gonna be able to juggle this network that you don't even know necessarily what you wanna do or where you wanna do it is really difficult. So I think just trying to stay in touch at the start as much as possible, um, just because out of sight, out of mind's a real thing. So you don't want to call someone six years ago, hey man, hey, remember me, and they may remember you, but now they may have a list of 10 people who've been staying in touch more than you. Mm -hmm. And so I think staying relevant, and relevant can just be a phone call, can be just an update. And then I think a big thing is summer league. It's the one time every year, and it's in the summer, so everyone's off season for the most part. A few of those summer leagues that go on around the world, um, it's one stop shop, and Everyone's there from players, coaches, front office, agents, uh, sponsors. I mean, I, I mean, I think anything that you're looking to do in the game of basketball, summer league is a no-brainer for networking. And I think that one is 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 an absolute no-brainer. You know, I know a bunch of times even with team on the team side, like I've been fortunate enough, I'm I'm still participating in summer league. So we even have guest coaches where you know there'll be someone whether they're coaching at the time overseas or someone that maybe is just interested in, man, I think I might want to coach. It's a great way to kind of stick stick your toe in there (laughs) because it's only a month long Mm -hmm. and it's not Mm -hmm. super, super, you know, a grind, like a real season, obviously. So I think that's a great way just to be like, okay, let me get a little taste of this and see how it is. And um, Mm -hmm. just a little bit of an insight.
0: Yeah, I love NBA Summer League, man. I think that is just – I mean, that's something I did probably like my last two or three seasons overseas, and I wish I would have done it from a rookie, you know, just going there every summer just because the whole basketball world is there, people that work in the league, people that work overseas, G League, college coaches. And like you said, I mean, just the entire basketball world is under one roof, you know, for a a particular time. So I definitely uh, think that's – that's definitely valuable, man. But before we get you out of here, man, uh, we, we gotta go back to the, uh, to, to, to the game, man. You said at the, uh, you sat in the pilot seat, you know, pop was out, pop was out at, a it was a Tim Duncan's hall of fame ceremony, man. And, uh, you know, my guy got to sit at the, uh, at the head of the table. Y'all got smacked though. Y'all got smacked, but man, I was, it was a proud moment for me, but, uh, Take me through that day, man. When did you? When did you? How far in advance did you know you'd be uh, head coaching? And what were some of the uh, the thoughts, emotions, and everything that was going on for that game? So
1: we learned about Timmy's Hall of Fame date months before the game, and so it was – Pop really struggled with going, just because obviously he he never wanted anything to look like uh, you know, it's hard you're missing a game, but it's Timmy, so that's a no-brainer. We played, We were playing Phoenix, and they were the team. It was my scout. So um, he had missed, you know, a game prior for I think he might have had a funeral or something the year before, and so we we had the same deal. It was actually Timmy's uh, game when he was an assistant coach, and he ended up being the head coach that game. So I uh, wasn't super surprised when he said it, but it definitely hit me still um you know you're like it it takes you in a whole different world right cuz you an assistant coach you're you have a whole different list of responsibilities you know you're thinking of micro stuff right you're thinking of why this guy didn't box out and this guy needs to set a screen on this play and what happened on that weak side rotation over there I'm not saying the head coach doesn't but he's managing the game right it's he's more 40,000 feet macro you know he's interacting with the refs he's trying to make sure you know that he's you know uh kind of setting the tone for the game whether that's you know offensive calls defensive calls so going into it I definitely tried to have to adjust my thinking a little bit in that regard and then obviously Phoenix was one of the best teams in the league and uh we had a few guys that didn't play that game as well so I uh I I knew there was a chance Probably a strong chance going into it, <laughs> it, could get, it could get ugly, and um, it got ugly. Fortunately, it, it didn't get like embarrassing ugly. You know what I mean? Like we didn't make history right. ugly. But yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was fun, man. I, I'd be lying to say I didn't have an absolute ball, and I got my ass right. kicked before it, and I've gotten my ass kicked since. So I didn't even mind. That one time getting my ass kicked, to be honest. I, I was self, <laughs> selfishly for me, man, I had a lot of fun. And it, it's a definitely, you know, everyone always says it's a big difference when you sit six inches to the left or to the right, you know, based on where you are on the bench. And, and I felt it. But uh, it was a lot of fun. And I, as any, as any, you know, career choice, it's something that I, I love. And hopefully one day I'll be able to do it, you know, more times and get that, that blowout out of my – that taste out of my mouth so
0: <laughs> i'll probably,
1: yeah, got- probably be the longest coach ever That 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 has had to be years before his next game after he got blown out like that but
0: hey man you won't be all in one forever man you won't be on one forever so don't even worry about that man but i appreciate you stopping by man dropping these gems for us man best of luck with the uh with the rest of the season and your career as well. And uh, you know, I don't hoop no more, but whenever I decide to pick up a ball again, man, we're gonna have to get back on the court. Oh no you know, one time. No
1: way. Maybe for-
0: <laughs> You ain't hooping no more?
1: Man, every now and then they get me out there. but now I only as long as I don't get hurt, that's the only time I don't even care if I win or lose anymore. I'll do some I'll do some horse or some shooting games, but running up and down, man, they got they gotta force me and they gotta pump me into that one
0: man i uh, i played with uh landry and kirk and them at uh, a at summer league my knees damn near snapped yeah. I, I ain't hooped in 11 months those, man. Those I guys was dying. Stop, man those guys never oh. stop nah nah for sure man but i appreciate your time and uh that's all we got for this episode stay in tune what we got next then we out